There's a lot to say when buying a new home or car, but only one thing to say that can help you protect them. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, a State Farm agent will be there to help you choose the coverage you need, no matter where you are in life. When you need coverage options, your State Farm agent is there to help, on the phone or in person. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 462. Today is Monday, January 6th, 2014. I uh, hope you had a nice New Year's. And uh, at midnight's back. We are back. At Midnight is returning to Comedy Central. Um, Forever, I hope. I don't know. Who knows with these things? But uh, for a while, maybe. Look, all I'm saying is, uh, if I got bitten by a vampire and I had to live forever and I got to do the show forever for your children and your great-grandchildren and your great-grandchildren's great-grandchildren, I would be fine with that. I would be totally fine with that. Um, But it starts with you. So please... As part of the At Midnight viewer drive, please watch At Midnight tonight uh, and every night after Colbert, Monday through Thursday. Well, that's not every night. But every night that a new Colbert is on, we're on right after him. So that starts tonight. Our guests tonight are Kamel Nanjiani and uh, Paul Shear and Andrea Savage. And uh, tomorrow we got uh, Doug Benson and uh, Moshe Kasher and Grace Helbig and then Ike Barinholtz and Jenny Slate and Tom Lennon and Kurt Brownholer and Kristen Schaal and Mike Lawrence. That's all this week on Comedy Central, so please, please, please watch it. And, uh, and thanks. Thanks for helping get the show picked up. If you listen to the podcast, you might have watched at midnight, and so I owe you a huge, a huge debt of gratitude for keeping me employed doing something that I love, and uh, also keeping this podcast afloat. Is uh, sponsored by IFC's Spoils of Babylon. Um, I don't know if you remember, uh, but uh, I've been trying to get Eric John Rosh, the legendary author, to agree to come on our show. Uh, we have still not been able to track him down. There's a lot of people. There are a lot of channels. There are attorneys. There are publicists. Um, there was uh, there was uh, some meditation guy that we had to talk to to get to him, and we, we weren't able to do it. But to get the John Rosh fix, uh, the Man of Mystery will be coming to television in the upcoming epic miniseries, The Spoils of Babylon, to IFC Thursday, January 9th. That's just in a couple days at 10, 9 central. The Spoils of Babylon has Kristen Wiig, Toby Maguire, Will Ferrell, Jessica Alba, Val Kilmer, Haley Joel Osment, Tim Robbins, Michael Sheen, who among other things was in Underworld. I loved Underworld, and I loved Underworld Evolution, all right? I loved the vampire in Lycan War, and Michael Sheen uh, was the head werewolf. So I'm, I, I would watch for that alone, even if it weren't for all the other amazing casts. The Spoils of Babylon, IFC, uh, January 9th at 10, 9 central. This episode is uh, Jim Norton. It was recorded a little while back. And uh, there were a bunch of other... Sometimes, you know, we record a bunch at once and then some just get shuffled later. It's not for any any other reason other than sometimes podcasts need to go earlier because people are promoting specific things that are time-sensitive. But I've known Jim forever. Um, didn't really know him that well. Uh, and we kind of got to be pals a little bit when I would pop onto the Opie and Anthony show and found out that Jim was a huge chess fanatic as... I mean, I played tournament chess when I was growing up, and uh, Jim knows his shit. He is, uh, 
he is ridiculously smart. And, uh, and so we talked a little bit about chess in here. And I really like Jim. Not only is he a great comic, but he's, a, he's the most honest person I know. Like, the guy is a straight shooter. He, whether or not you agree with everything he says, he is 100% honest. And actually does something which most people in our culture don't do, which is he stands behind his opinions. He actually is accountable for the things that he says. So uh, uh, I, I really enjoyed talking to Jim, and uh, you probably, you may or may not be familiar with his work, but he has a comedy special out now called American Degenerate, which is available on VOD. Uh, so go go find it somewhere on the internet, and uh, please enjoy the Nerds Podcast number 462 with Jim Norton. Now entering... Nerdist.com See, Jim Norton's used to being in a snazzy, fancy studio uh, at Sirius. Oh, we have a terrible studio there. I wish it was <laughs> We had a good go one at XM, but the Sirius one is just small and humiliating. It's not that small. Well, the table, like, the, the table is massive. Yeah. So, like, a lot of the room in that space is taken up by the, mat. like, you know, the guys are way across that long table. Yeah, we had a great performance space at XM, too. We had a, a massive, massive studio, and then we moved to Sirius, and it's just, oh, it's just the worst. They <laughs> stick us in this little shitbox, but... I guess well, they, what it is. they have to pay Stern, so he's got half like, the building. Yeah, he literally has half the floor. <laughs> but he was smart. He negotiated. Yeah, no, he did it right. Coming off regular radio, he did it right. Jesus, it's just embarrassing with a <laughs> closet in the back. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. Don't even look at the side of the building. What you eat? No, no, no. Just divert your eyes. Oh, it, dude, it really is awful. Like you walk into Sirius, and to the right there is this palace behind glass. He's got camera people walking people in. <laughs> yeah. All these celebrities, they just slink into the fucking toilet in the back and then there we are broadcasting. Well, what's so funny is it, it's, yeah, he, he, he basically... We can curse on here? Sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah of course. Go for it. He basically has Cloud City over to the side and then, yeah, as, as you walk down to your guys' side of the studio... <laughs> You see all of uh, there are closets where they've just like stuck someone to broadcast. Like, yep. oh, that guy's probably the Bluegrass Channel. You know, where it, it literally you can't <laughs> you can't imagine that a human being could fit in this space. And there's the little broadcasting. And outlaw outlaw radios in the ductwork. It is literally, <laughs> dude. It's one. It's a closet. It's room for one person to sit there and talk into. It. And these guys do their their uh, their air checks on it. And I'm like, oh man. But you you can never give away that you're doing that. So it sounds like they're having a great time in a big studio. <laughs> That's someone hanging on by a thread in a closet. You're right. It's terrible. So how do you like doing how do you like doing radio? I love it. Yeah. Love it, man. Yeah, it's my favorite form of, uh, I guess, whatever it is we do. And I guess the, the, uh, the, my favorite medium of performing is radio. Because you can, you can freestyle for a while. You can talk. It's not just like stand-up where you gotta, you have to be, you know, that, that, that joke, that, that, that joke. You can't meander on stage in front of people. Yeah. They don't right. want to hear that shit. You know, it's like get to the point already. But on radio, you have a lot of freedom. Do you feel like that helped you at all? Just sort of, I mean, your, your stage, I've been watching you perform for years. And, and I feel like your persona has always been pretty strong on stage. But do you feel like that the... That the, the being able to just talk freely every day in that setting, did that help 
comedy at all? I think so, yeah, because it forces you to be topical. It forces you to kind of pay attention to what's going on. I mean, you have to because you're talking about it every day. So it helps update material because you're always talking about stuff. You're always thinking about stuff. So when you're creating on stage, it's like, well, I talked about this for four hours this morning. Let me see if it comes on. Yeah. But half the time what you talk about on the radio, it doesn't work on stage. I mean, you can give real opinions on the radio and talk about it for 15 minutes. But if you go on stage, you know, after 10 seconds, you're like, oh, God, I'm being a preachy douche. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear this. <laughs> Boo. So you panic a little bit more. Well, how do you think guy? How, how do you think like Louis gets? How do you think Louis is able to? Like he's basically he's it's like his stand up has essentially just sort of become like a one man show yeah. where he's pretty much just talking about himself on stage and and it's you know and it it definitely works. Well, Louis, I mean, went through it. I mean, he's a twenty five year guy. I mean, Louis is a guy who like you know the, the critics murdered him for a lot of stuff he did, and then finally they caught on and went, oh, this guy's really. I mean, like it's like Louis is not so much of a better comic now than he was five years ago. He was a great comic then. But they, the business finally caught up, and the critics finally caught up and went, oh, because his new show is so good, then they see the rest of him and realize how brilliant he's been so for a long So it's contextualized time. in the right yeah, way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but Louis has always been that guy. Like, he's the greatest, like, st- like he's a guy I could listen to talk about anything for hours. He has, there's people that have the ability to just tell a story and, and make you want to keep listening. And it's like, I don't have that ability. Um, Jim Brewer has that ability. Yeah. Him yeah. and Louie are probably the two greatest I've ever seen where I could sit them and just wa- I could watch either one of those guys talk and not interrupt for an hour or two hours at a time. Yeah. It's just fascinating storytellers to me. I feel that way about Burr, too. I love listening to Bill talk. I do, too. I mean, although Bill, I, I equate more as like, uh, I, I haven't, I've never heard him long form like that. Like, you know what I mean? We've interacted f- for so many years, but I've never heard him like tell like Brewer will tell like a one hour story. Yeah. It's like the confidence to do it. Yeah. It's amazing that he can do that. And you're sitting there watching, and it's like I'm in the business. I know how it works, and I'm like a fucking audience member. I'm like, oh, what what happened? What happened? <laughs> like he's that good at it. Um, yeah, Bill's also Bill's a brilliant comic, man. He's a brilliant comic. There is a funny, you know. Uh, I mean, I guess Los Angeles kind of has its little comedy cliques and and whatnot. I mean, you know, you sort of have your. I don't know, alternative scene for lack of a better term, which is like, you know, UCB and Meltdown and the independent shows. And then you have like, I don't know who goes to the improv. Like, I don't know who performs the improv. I don't know if it's like a really... It's someone different every night. It's it's kind of a different... Used to be a scene, but now I don't know who goes there anymore. Um, I'm not, I mean that in a disparaging way. I just don't know. Uh, Then there's Comedy Store and then there's Laugh Factory and those are distinct. New York is... I, whenever I go to New York, I remember like, oh, there's a place where you could do like three shows a night and people will show up. However, I've still not cracked the code on the old comedy cellar. When I first went to New York like 10 years ago, someone was like, don't even try to perform here because it's not, you know, like someone from the inside was like, it's not, you can't get in. And then recently I went back to New York. And I was like, oh, I could probably get up at the comedy cellar now. And even my manager was like, yeah, I don't think I can get you in there. It's like a pretty walled off garden. Well, there. do you, uh, I mean, does Esty know you? No, I don't <laughs> think Esty so. Esty is the one who, uh, who books the comedy cellar and she's been there for years and years. I don't, I don't know her. But uh, I'll her. introduce you to her. She's, really, she's actually nice. People are scared of her because she's Israeli and she's very aggressive and she sounds harsh. But she's really a sweetheart. Um, and I'm sure that they would put you on. I mean, or, or what do you think it is about that club that has that specific, like that that one place just sort of feels like every other place is, you could you know, but this place is super sacred. It's an amazing testing ground for everything because it's McDougal Street in the Village, and you get walk-in business like no other club in, in the country. I'm sure. Right. And it's everybody. It's black and it's white and it's foreign and it's American and it's German. There's there's such a mix there that it, it's like if your stuff works. If I figure if it gets a five there, it's going to get an eight and a half on the road. Mm-hmm. That's the way I, I yeah. test everything in the cellar. 
Um, and it's a brutally honest room. Like, you know, uh, I've seen, you know, Robin Williams will go on or Chappelle or any of these guys. And they always, like, as celebrities, get respect. But after five minutes, I mean, uh, those guys will start tanking, too, if they're not doing good stuff. Like, right. you know, or if they're just working out. I've seen Damon go on there and bomb for 45 minutes. And I love him because he doesn't give a shit. He's working on material. The cellar is a very, very honest room. It's distracting. Um, you know, you're on stage, and literally the door is probably 20 feet in front of you, and the audience is a little bit in front of you, and then off to the right and left, and there's always people walking through to the bathroom. So it trains you to deal with distraction. Like, there's no better club to work out in for when you go on the road, because nothing on the road is as distracting as that room at times can be. Yeah. What's your, <laughs> is there a, a worst story in your head of like, oh, fuck, someone just like had a real rough. Oh, and we've all bombed horribly. I mean, I, I love that room, but we've all died terrible deaths there. I mean, uh, <laughs> I, I can't think of anyone because there's nobody I know who I haven't seen bomb there. I mean, nobody. Uh, I, the only time, years ago, I, I think it was 98, actually, I was on stage, and there was a huge fight broke out upstairs. Um, there were some Samoan guys fighting, and uh, I remember emceeing the fight from downstairs. <laughs> but they couldn't hear me, just the audience could. But that was the only really, truly uncomfortable moment I had because these guys had been thrown out of the cellar, and uh, they were really big, frightening guys, and um, then they were throwing tables upstairs. But that's the only real weird memory. Other than that, it's just, you know, bombing like everywhere else. Do you think the more famous a comic gets, the less, the, the more afraid of bombing they become I'm, I depend some guys sure like Chris Rock will go in and do like he'll read a piece of paper and he'll just and he's very funny because he'll open up they'll go crazy and he'll say immediately lower your expectations like I'm you know where he's, he's and it's funny but he's working on material so I don't think a guy like that cares um, but I'm sure some guys get worried about oh no that people are gonna blog if I go up there and suck or you know, and then there's guys like him that just don't really. Does care. that bother you at all? No, I mean I, I I attack back though. Like I'm stupid. I'm eventually going to be shot because <laughs> like I hate uh, I, I hate mail. I I go after them. I go right after them when they send me anonymous emails. Um, and I really shouldn't. You know, I I, I attack them back because I hate the fact yeah. that they are um, saying things under a fake name. I have just such a visceral hatred. Uh, but I've had a few guys like say like almost death threats under their real name, and I'm like, all right, that guy's a problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah, if someone's gonna stand behind their words as themselves, that guy's a psychopath. That guy's a yeah. psychopath. Yeah. yeah. So a few of them, I've kind of like I've gone back and forth with them. I'm like, all right, it's not worth getting you know getting <laughs> shot over. Well, as you were sort of, do you, were you always the, the the sort of the point of view that you have on stage now? Were you always that guy, or did it sort of evolve in any way? I mean, I don't think I'm that much different as a person. I'm just more confident in my own opinions. Not even being right or wrong, but just being honest about them. Like, you know, if for a long time you want people to like you on stage. Like, you know, be likable. Like the business tells us, be likable, be likable. And it's revolting because you try to get like this. I, I did a character when I first started uh, where I was like high energy and quirky. It's like I literally want to cut my own throat when I watch it. It's like, how you doing? Like, oh. <laughs> Shirt <Sure, I'm> off. <laughs> And uh, as time goes on, you realize that being funny and being honest is what you should do. Not even be right. Like, comics get caught up in being right and being smarter than the audience. And it's like every comic, you're going to bat 500 like every other dumbbell out there. We, we're, half the times I'm right and half the times I'm wrong. That's it. So as long as I realize that and I just tell the truth about the way I see something... You know, you can't lose anything like that. So. Well, I think being likable or being relatable means, like, you're comfortable with who you are. And if you are yourself on stage, it, it's not whether or not you say popular things. It's just like, because, you know, like, again, going back to Louis, he says a lot of things that, that very few people could ever get, probably just him could get away with saying. 
uh, you know, and, and but because it's you get the character, you get where he's coming from, and you believe that he's kind of authentic, or you go, all right, yeah, I like that guy because you know he's it's not it's, so it's not the words. I think it's really the how how honest is it? And you're right. I, I wish the whole business saw it the way you did. Uh, it's being being you know funny and relatable, and that's what likable is. I but the business looks at it. And they're so they're just such dummies that you know that you have to be like uh, palatable to everybody that's their definition of likable yeah. is agreeable to everyone whereas your definition of likable is what we all want just well it's, imp- funny it's impossible to be agreeable to everyone it's just impossible especially now when shows aren't just you know the couple hundred people in the room but you know they can spill over online to millions of people and it's like ah oh, people who weren't even there are commenting on shit uh, yeah out of context and yeah. you know, it really is a, it's a terrible era we live in as far as just sound bites and 2 second clips and 5 second clips and we all know this and yet we all still act like it's 1975 and they're covering a news story completely inaccurately. Right. It's like we are, our, our ability to process this shit hasn't caught up with the fact that the information is being thrown out so fast. So we still act like it's legitimate and accurate news, even though we know it's a 24-hour news cycle and crap and you're getting a piece <laughs> of the story. Yeah. Bizarre that we react that but way. Well, this is we're a headline culture now and there's so much information for us to process at all times that we're only really getting like – you know, I think it's the fallout of people having to take in all this information but then quickly categorize it because they have to deal with it so they can move on. And they go, I hate that, I hate that, I hate that. Yes. That's dumb. I like that, I like that, I like that, I like that. Done. Did you read any of that stuff? No, 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 no. I got it. Yeah. You go, but you didn't really get it because it's too much energy to, to deep dive yep. and really form an opinion. Yep, that's it. So it's just, I think it's, you know, it's it's the curse and the uh, end of blessing. A lot of energy. You got to click. Yeah, you, you gotta really read. You gotta read more than three words. It is fucked. Up. Scroll down sometimes. Oh no no no. <laughs> no 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 no. That means you have to lift your hands and like drag the mouse. But what Siri, are, scroll down. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I've really enjoyed about coming on O and A and talking to you about is is when I sort of tripped over the fact that you're a chess fanatic, that I had no, I mean I just. I had no idea, and it's not just that you like chess. Like, you really, really, really know it and love it and follow it. Yeah, I don't play as much as I used to. I used to love playing, but it's like I just I just haven't had the – I used to play at the Comedy Cellar every night. And um, I just haven't in a while, but I, I always liked chess players. Like, I love, like, uh, you know, Magnus Carlsen and Vishianon. Like, I just – I love those guys because they're so much better at something than I'll ever be. There's something about – Somebody being that good at chess that just it, it it fascinates me. Right to see it in a way I'll never see it. You know what I mean? It's like but doesn't it work? Don't you go, boy? If I were that talented at something, but I knew I had to be a little off, would you want that ability? Like, would you want to be like Bobby Fischer, or would you? Or he wasn't a little off. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. But would you want to be? Would you want to be? That guy, I, for that level of genius, yeah. I mean, you'll take, I'll it. take some yeah. racism. Yeah, <laughs> and Fisher was, but Fisher was Jewish. Like that was the, the he was a hundred percent Jewish. His mother and his father. Like, I don't know why I have to explain what a hundred percent is. You guys, you guys, you guys, you guys, Wait, you so you're saying his mother and his father were Jewish? You're yeah. saying his mother was Jewish, but his father was also yes. Jewish. Wait a minute, his mother was one hundred and ten percent Jewish. His dad was negative ten. He was ninety percent yeah. Jewish. It's always good to say it and clarify exactly what you mean by a hundred percent Jewish. I'm a, That's I'm just a what happens when you start to get older is that you over-explain yeah. things. That, no, I think it comes from radio because you're like you got to go. But oh, I let me support this yeah. statement. No, no, no. I, I, I found. That as I've gotten older, 
uh, I, I was trying to make a bit out of it, and I could never make it work. But it was. But I will be in situations where someone will say, like, "Oh, you know, can I take her?" And I'll go, oh, "Can I? I'll have this. Uh, I'll have the vegetarian pasta." I'm not vegetarian. It's my girlfriend's vegetarian. No, I'm trying. Like half the time, I'm vegetarian. So like, and I give this whole backstory. And I'm like, they don't need any of this information, right. and I feel like I have to share you it. You can't for be some vegetarian reason. half the time. No, but I mean, like, I eat. Okay, don't please, don't make. <laughs> well, I'm me trying to be the waiter. Yeah. Okay, guys. <laughs> then you should just sir, walk away, sir, like the other. Sir, like, I don't think you can be vegetarian half the time. <laughs> what a shitty waiter. But it is. Uh, but it is that sort of like you know you really you really need people to understand. I guess I don't know what it is. My father used to do that, and it would drive me crazy. Like that over explaining. Like you know, like he would say, like, "Yeah, I'm gonna get a cup of, cup of coffee." Like I, I'd like a good cup of coffee. I'm like, I don't give a shit. I'm like, All right, <laughs> have it. But I do the same thing. I do the exact same thing. So yeah, Bobby for Bobby Fisher's level of genius. Yeah, I would take it because uh, he was nuts. But um, you know, he was just bitter about a lot of shit that happened. That was that was not attached to that you know he, he felt like his, his all his stuff was taken and he was you know screwed by not being allowed back in the US because he played in Yugoslavia and it's, it's just silly but playing went, but oh go ahead go ahead, go no, ahead. No, I said I just it was it was silly the way he, he I think he was afraid of losing and that's why he kind of went out of public life I think that after he beat uh, Spassky he was afraid of losing and I think that's why he had all these crazy demands and, and they gave him almost everything he wanted but there's one thing they wouldn't give him and then he's like I'm not playing uh, and I, I, I forget who he was supposed to play. I want to say, was it Kamsky? I don't remember who he was supposed to play. Uh, it wasn't like Kasparov or someone? No, he was long no, before was, Kasparov. Yeah, way before. You know what he called Kasparov? He referred to him as Weinstein the Jew. That was his nickname. For, that was his nickname for Kasparov because Kasparov's real name was Weinstein, and I think his like stepfather and Fisher hated him so much that he would refer to him as Weinstein the Jew. Like, That's he, my nickname for Miramax. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's amazing how like that 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 anger just spewed out into all this anti-Semitic shit and it was like it just became this crazy obsession competitive chess is really fucked up because I played competitive I played competitively from like most of the time I was in grade school I played competitively and it and there's there's something really weird and isolating and fucked up about staring at a board and being in this bubble and trying to see ten moves ahead on every piece, and essentially also trying to psych someone out, trying to outplay someone the entire time. You know, if you're playing for two or three hours, it's it's hard for me to play anymore because I played it such. Uh, it, it would required so much energy that now it's hard for me to play for fun because I get into this like yes. <sighs> this this fucking scanners mode where I'm in my nose is gonna bleed and I want someone's yeah. head to fold open. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. It's hard it's hard to enjoy it because there's so much at stake in winning and losing. If I'm gonna play somebody, I want to play somebody so much better than me that I know I have no shot of winning so I can just enjoy watching them kick my balls in. Well you could be as bad at it as I am and play anybody you want. You're gonna lose. <laughs> <laughs> there, but there's something freeing in that. It's like yeah. you know like it's almost like hitting on the ten in the in the bar, the hottest girl. You know she's gonna yeah. say no. So it's just it's it's the experience of doing it. Like I would love to play Magnus Carlson or one of those guys, and just I would love to watch how effortlessly brilliant they are at doing that. Like, and I've been playing since I was in fourth grade, and you know, and Magnus Carlson was better at this by the time he was seven, probably than I'll ever be in my life. And there's just something fascinating about that. To there me. was this one. Uh, I remember going to this. Um, I'm actually performing in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, soon, and. I used to play tournaments in Murfreesboro when I lived in Memphis, and there was one grandmaster, and I can't remember his name, but basically they lined up 50 students, and he would just walk down oh, yeah. and play, you know, and there was a, there was a kid in our school, uh, a kid and his, his sister, uh, Oliver Ty and Stephanie Ty, 
and uh, they were the Asian kids in our predominantly white school. Uh, well, explain and to me, how did that work? Is his mother Asian? Yeah, it works. 100%. <laughs> so his mother was about 150% Asian. His dad. Uh, but, uh, but And they skipped a bunch of grades. They were super smart. Sure. And this kid, when he was like seven or eight years old, beat the Grandmaster. And it was fucking amazing because I was a couple of... I was a couple of boards down from them, and he was very just like going through the motions, not kind of half paying attention. And then he went to make a move and then stopped, and then like had to look at the board and, and really stopped. And it, it and and across from the board was this like seven or eight year old Asian kid who ended up beating him, which wow. was fucking incredible. Yeah, that really is. I mean, the fact that first of all that they can do that. There was a, a guy named there's a player named Nadorf. He's dead now. Um, who would who would do that? But he did a blindfold. He did blindfold a blindfold roundtable like that. Where well, that's just showing off. It really. There's something so arrogant about that. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Seriously, showboating. It's, Ridiculous. It's like knocking a girl up from across the room. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's just something so humiliating. Hey, for I just came in you. <laughs> what? <laughs> yep. <laughs> You're welcome. Get tested for a lot of things. <laughs> See you guys later. Uh, how did he? How do you? How do you play blindfolded? Is, you, you, well, they have to. I mean, I, I can't look. At he like, hears how heavy the pieces are, and where <laughs> they fall on the board. Or do they just say like E two E four D seventy five? When people move the knife, they instinctively go. Brr. So he did. <laughs> <laughs> Matt just spit water. <laughs> I am so sorry. That is the first spit take. That is the first first legitimate spit take. In the history of the podcast. Fucking water. I am. I apologize. I can't. I am sorry. That's a great compliment. You you earned a You know, most countries. (laughs) So sorry. Uh, Jim, you're pregnant. Uh, (laughs) So they're basically just reading reading the notation. Yeah, and he and, you, and you're facing away from the board, and uh, the, the guy will come back, and he will. Uh, <laughs> they say nay when they move the knife. <laughs> oh fuck! Lord have mercy. I'm All right. Sorry. So he would do, he would do that, and uh, they, they can play just by e two e four, and then you have to just read the moves to them every time they get back to the board, so they can remember. Right? Can you can you picture the board no in, way. in those terms? No way, can't do it. I've never been able to do that. I can I can picture like the first two moves, like you know the e two e four. I can't go any farther than that. I can't read a game without like these guys just read a game. You know e two e four d seven. I can't do that. I have to look at the pieces move. I can't, yeah, can't see it like that. Although. Talk about Magnus Carlsen. When he was 13, he, he played to a draw with Kasparov, and that was a one-on-one game. That wasn't a uh, you know a, a whole row of games. Yeah. That was just him and, and Gary Kasparov, and he played him to a draw, which I think was uh, – and Kasparov was kind of twatty about it when he walked back. He was really <laughs> embarrassed. That mm-hmm. 13. Well, no one – I mean, you know, listen, it's uh, – these guys who are basically these computational machines – that is their world. That is their pride. That is that is that is as much who they are as anything else. And so to be challenged or bested or like, that's. I mean, I, it would be interesting if someone and maybe someone has, but to do like a, you know a documentary, a psychological profile on like fallen chess uh, grandmasters and see if it completely like unhinges their lives once they stop winning. It's interesting. I don't. I, I know a lot of them are probably crazy, and they and they fall into these weird. Like you know, you look at how nutty. Uh, Fisher was, and I've read about other ones 
that were kind of crazy or they died alone and broke. Like Alexander uh, Alakine was a really famous one from, from I guess, the you know, 1900, early 1900s. And uh, he was like a real crazy drunk. Like, so, so Do you think many... there's a degree of savantism to it? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, I, a certain, uh, only like, an, like an autism almost or an Asperger's yeah. quality. Because Fisher was such a fucking wacko, you know, about every, he was OCD about his the, the noises and the chairs and they couldn't film because he could hear the whir of the cameras. I mean, he was a motherfucker to deal with. Like, even when he was becoming champion, he missed one of the games. I think he was, uh, he didn't want to go to Reykjavik because uh, the, the terms weren't what he wanted, so he forfeited one of the games. Uh, so he, he was down wow. one full game to nothing to the world champion, and he still beat, I mean, I mean, Jesus, what a psychological uh, fucking that. Well, I think, <laughs> I think obviously you have to have, uh, you basically have to see things in, uh, in a way that most people don't process information, or you have to be able to, you know, uh, I mean, again, it's, it's looking how many far moves ahead can you see and, and how many different combinations and possibilities are there yeah. and then trying to trying to steer someone for what you think you want them to do seven moves from now and then if they are somehow able to block it, it's like, oh, you got to start over and then this other thing and, and it just, it used to fucking, I mean, I, I used to finish exhausted these chess tournaments um, that, uh, and I will say, having been bullied uh, in grade school, Way worse, this sort of psychological warfare that would happen during a chess match of them just trying to get into your head. And like, you feel it almost feels like someone's trying to read your thoughts where you're looking across from them and then you're like, get the fuck out of my head. Yeah. Yeah. There's a real. Uh... Well, that's on you. <laughs> <laughs> they do it in the park in Washington Square Park in yeah. New York. They, the homeless guys play and they play for drink money and food money. And a lot of grandmasters will come in and just test, even though they're technically much better players. A lot of these homeless guys are almost master level players. Like they, they are really good, but they talk such shit and it's such a psychological aggression hmm. that these grandmasters will come in and test themselves against these guys in the park because. Uh, even though in a tournament you're never gonna have a guy, you know, uh, you know, fuck it. Like I used to play Keith Robinson. He used to pick, I would move my queen and he would pick her up and he'd go, ah, let's see what kind of panties this bitch got on. I'd be like, put my queen down. <laughs> Stop touching her. He would just do it to annoy me. But like that type of stuff, <clears throat> that type of taunting. Uh, you have to be able to play through it. It's a chess version of the comedy seller. That's what they're going exactly. to do. They're being heckled, basically. <laughs> yeah, they're basically being heckled. And they would go in and test their skills. I've never played in the park. Like, I would love to. I just haven't done it. Because I know I would lose, but uh, I would rather just pay the guy to play me. Like, I don't yeah. want to yeah. gamble. I would rather just give the guy 10 bucks and go, all right, just beat me. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a favorite chess movie? I mean, well, Wait, what? Well, you know, night moves, but that's just so much <laughs> um, I don't know. Searching for Bobby Fischer was good. Uh, I like that. Um, Such a great movie. The document. I mean, then documentaries don't count. I guess chess movie. How many have there been? I can think of night yeah. moves and fucking. Searching Maybe just for... searching for Bobby Fischer. There's a new one coming. Rethink out. your question. Computer chess. Oh, computer chess. Yeah. What's yeah. that? It's this. Uh, I'm not sure what guy did it, but like he uh, he did like a faux documentary on like um, all the, like this big convention where people were playing against computers for the oh. first time. But he also shot it on a video camera that was from that era. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. And oh, nice. Uh, it, it looks really, really good. It's uh, The trailer's out online. It's called Computer Chess. It looks great. Is it a narrative? Uh, yeah, there is a narrative in there. The first one, the first computer, I think, was an MIT one that Fisher beat, destroyed it in like 17 or 20. Like, you really murdered this thing. And then they came up with Deep Blue to play Kasparov, and he beat it. And he beat it easily. I mean, uh, and I think it did 100 million calculations a second. And then they finally came back with a newer version which did, I think, 200 million calculations a second, and that one beat 
cash props. <clears throat> and then from there, I think computers have just gotten so much better that they're always going to be yeah. better than us at that. Yeah. They, they, don't, they didn't understand subtleties for a while, which I don't either, but these, these <laughs> fucking grandmasters understand the subtlety of a move. And he said, sometimes you just put a piece somewhere because it feels right. Like you just, It just feels like you know that that's where it should yeah. be at that moment. Oh, yeah. Well, that's all that Malcolm Gladwell stuff of like, there are a billion things going on outside your conscious mind, and that's why you get gut feelings that it's actually, you know... You know, it's they'll blink stuff like, "Oh, you're 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 actually are calculating the answer. You're just unaware of the calculation process." Oh, so that that they, you know, he's seeing something and he's gathering all the information and it's processing outside his conscious mind and faster than he can comprehend. Right, and so that's why it's like, "Oh, this just feels right." That somewhere in his brain, there is actually a mathematical yeah. reason for why he's doing what he's doing. Like a gut feeling is always sent from your brain as opposed to yeah. just being a, a physical thing from your stomach. Exactly. Exactly. Um, do you is it is this too hippie or anything to say like, you know, is there anything about chess that you took skill sets into comedy into like? No, honestly, no, because I was never good enough at chess for that. Like, I just I love it and I, I enjoy playing it, but there was nothing about it that would translate. It was it's just something I, I enjoy and I'm fascinated with the guys who who are great at it. Uh, I've like I've never met any of them. Like, I would really be fucking starstruck to meet like uh, Anand or any of these guys. I uh, I fucking uh, I tweeted uh, Carlson and he tweeted me back. I was so happy. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I just loved it. But no, I've I've never. Uh, uh, I don't think brought any of that into comedy that I can think of. No, because I, I was not. I was. I never played in tournaments like you did. Like I, I never took it that far, because I just, you know, I couldn't commit to it. I don't think that. I'd like to do. I don't think I would want to play tournament chess as an adult. I mean, like it's, it's one thing when you're a kid. It's it's, it's hard enough because kids are kind of brutal to each other. But it just you know, adults. I don't know. It's just it's just too. There's too much testosterone or too much like. You should join a join a chess site and play online. Play people online. I can't play anymore. I just can't play anymore. It 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 hurts my brain because I can't not I can't, can't I can't do it and go. This is pleasurable. Yeah. It's like I'm in this for hours now and I can't do anything else. That hurts my heart. <laughs> Why does that hurt your I heart? I want you to play. You're I'm, cheating yourself. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm good with you not playing. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Do you play chess with friends? That I kind of like. Is there? Oh, I yeah, play chess with friends. The app yeah, is actually good. pretty good. It's a really good app actually, and. Uh, uh, you know, you don't have to see the people, and you just play once a day or whatever. And you, you, if you have 15 games going, you just you know you're on a plane, get ready to take off. You play three or four moves. And Jim's of... Jim's number one feature: you don't have to see the people. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. It's like Clitty.com, but it's, it's chess. <laughs> I had the Atari. Uh, like I remember playing Atari chess, like having Atari for the uh, like chess for the 2600, and then uh, some friends of mine, my, some friends of my parents had these kids, and they they had money. And in the, in the 80s, they had this board that worked on magnets so that the pieces would move themselves. Oh, wow. oh I remember those boards. Fucking yeah, yeah, yeah. so mind-blowing. Yeah. Uh, at the time, in the 80s, it was like, it's the future. <laughs> you, were, you were like a juggalo back then. Yeah, I guess What's I happening? I don't understand magnets. these magnets. Yeah, how, do they, how, how, do many they how many times did it get stuck, though, where two pawns would bump into each other and you'd have to help it along? It must have happened. <laughs> yeah, every once in a while. But yeah. you were, you know, because what would happen is if, if a piece was moving past another wall of pieces, one would have to move out of the way. It was imperfect. Yeah. <laughs> but when it worked, it was still... Each it was time it did, it took 15 minutes. Oh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. You're yes. telling me this machine couldn't make the piece hover? 
No. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, my God. Hover chest. Hover chest would be awesome. There's no reason we couldn't do that now. Uh, technology. Yeah, I'm Not sure there there's, I'm sure An there's interest, a hover chest yeah, board. Probably too expensive and no one <laughs> Yeah, time. There's a lot of reasons. In room. <laughs> how long have you been on, uh, how long have you been doing the O&A show now? Since 2000. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I started going on, uh, and I got hired, and then we got kicked off the air in 2002 for two years, 26 months, and then we came back on XM in 2004. What did you do for those 26 months? Well, you did stand-up, but what did they do for I was depressed. Months? They just collected money. They got yeah. paid the whole time. I get paid for only six months. I was manically depressed, and then Colin came up with a tough crowd. Yeah. So I literally almost, it was almost a seamless segue from Opie and Anthony off the air, two years on Comedy Central, and... Tough Crowd ended November of 2004, and Opie and Anthony came back on October of 2004. Oh, wow. So it was a part, yeah, it was, yeah. It, and it made me a better comedian because it forced me to write topically a lot. Um, and you were going to be on, you know, it was usually it was Colin and four people. So I was usually on with like Patrice or Nick DiPaolo yeah. or Keith or, or uh, Geraldo. So you were on with really funny guys and guys who would call you out for nonsense. Like if you did anything that got applause, in the audience, like if you said something, like you know, I mean, because the children really are important. <laughs> fucking, you were a dead man. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it, it, that hokey shit that people do. Like that's what the was, clap trap. We call it the uh, clap trap. Yes. <laughs> so, so you had to write funny stuff, and you knew you were writing with a guy like Nick DiPaolo, who's a brilliant joke writer, or Geraldo, uh, and you had to come up with three or four options for each joke because uh, if you guys were firing out ideas and Geraldo said something, you couldn't repeat that. Yeah punchline or something too similar so it made me a much better comic because uh, I had to be really really focused on God that topics. fucking that fucking guy I, I didn't know Greg that well but I, I miss him because he was one of those comics where first of all super sweet guy yes. or at least he was to me and he was the first person I saw perform after 9-11 and it was only like maybe a week or so uh, and he like he gave this room of people like they, I being in New York at that time, living in New York at that time, they fucking really needed it. Yeah. And it, but but the jokes were solid, and he, just out of that, I, I just I I would, I can't fathom having to write about that kind of thing right after it happened and have it be funny and not disrespectful, but right. sort of be cathartic. And uh, that was a, that was a, one of the first times I was like, holy shit. Comedy is powerful. Like it's sort of hokey to say that. That's a claptrap. Yeah. But um, but but it was in that moment. It was like it actually was healing in a in a in a weird way. Well, did we we I remember at the cellar we started talking about like uh, we were sitting up at this table. It was like it was all this. You know, same guys on Tough Crowd, Patrice Collins, and we were talking about the daydreams we had about nine eleven. Like because everybody after that happened thought, what would I have done in that situation? It's just a human. Would I have attacked one of these guys? Would I have just been passive and been killed like, how would I have reacted it was just a, a normal thought process and we realized we were all having it so we were sitting there talking about what we fantasized about doing and uh, it was funny and it was serious and it was but it was very honest we were just talking about and Keith Robinson like I, I remember uh, Patrice's and, 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 and uh, at the end of Patrice's he said like he would be a hero and then cabs would have to take him where he wanted and he was being funny <laughs> but he was also being real like that was what he thought and Keith, this dope, that I, this is what he said in his fantasy he would do. When they were boarding the plane, if he knew that, that like, you know, uh, 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 Mohammed Atta and those guys were on the plane, he goes, I would punch the flight attendant getting on the plane. And when the cops went to arrest me, I would say, you got to arrest those guys. They're terrorists. <laughs> and I'm what? Like, that was, but that was his daydream. So we were, we, you know, he, and this was upstairs we talked about this. So when Keith was hosting one night and I went on after him, 
and I'm like, a hand for Keith, and I'm like, do you know what a dumb motherfucker your host is? And I told the story about what an idiot he was, and the crowd laughed, and, and, you know, and it, was like a, it was like a relief, so we started talking about, and I'm not saying that's why Geraldo, he right. may have been doing that first, but that was how you did it. We, we started mocking each other in our own stupid daydreams, and it, it depended, I guess, on where you put the joke. Right. Like, if you, if you put the joke on people jumping out the window... You still can't do that. Like, people wouldn't laugh at it. They would find no. it too heartless. Geraldo put the joke on... It was a lot of uh, the stupidity of what the terrorists believed they were getting. Yes. Where it was like... He was like, 72 virgins. Have you ever slept with a virgin before? It's like, it's terrible. There's a lot of crying. There's apologizing. Yeah. Like, yeah, he basically made it about all of those things, yes. which were about the topic, but 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 sort of beautifully sort of weaved around the topic. Yes. And 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 made it very human and and, and relatable. Yeah. I, I guess I didn't expect to to be what I still feel to be like, yeah, we're still pretty young guys and have lost comics like yeah. Greg and Patrice and like, oh, they're just not- Jenny, Richard Jenny shooting himself and there's so many guys. Yeah. It's it's fucking I mean, you know, Patrice was the hardest. That's the hardest death I've ever had uh, because it was a natural cause. Like Greg, we knew Greg was on a dangerous path because, you know, I knew him for years and he was partying too much. And it's like when a guy is doing that, you're never surprised. It's always sad. Or Mitch. Or, oh, yeah, exactly. People knew he was doing drugs. So when a guy like that dies, you're like, fuck, you dope. You didn't have to. But you knew eventually that was the road where it goes. It never changes. But Patrice was just, you know, he was a big dude. But when a guy in your age group dies of a stroke, you know, he was 41. I'm like, holy, it's like fucking, it's, it's, you can't prepare yourself for it. You can't, um, you know, especially since, you know, I had seen him, he did the Sheen roast and he was talking to us um, and he said that William Shatner and him had talked after and Shatner had said to him, like, your body is shutting down your body. And Patrice said it made him cry. Like he really, it really affected him. This conversation he had with William Shatner and uh, that was not long before he died. Um, why, why was Shatner saying that? To I don't him? remember what they were talking about. I think Amy had done a joke, which she got shit for, which she never should have got shit for, about uh, Patrice and having diabetes and dying. But, you know, it, it, he loved Amy, and they were just being brutal as comedians. Yeah. So I think that there was something about diabetes that had led into that discussion after with Patrice and William Shatner. I, he related it to me. I wasn't there for it. But uh, it bothered him because he kind of knew that his body... You know, he knew that he was having health issues and <clears throat> that he had to do something. He just, he just, I guess, didn't react in time. Mm. Yeah. Do you, did you guys do any, uh, did, was there a, a show or did you kind of do any memorial thing? Yeah, we did a benefit. Um, it was hard to put together because uh, a lot of comedians who, uh, you know, claimed to give a fuck about Patrice didn't want to do anything with it. Uh, but, you know, we did it. Bill Burr was great. Bill put it together at uh, City Center in New York. And it was, uh, it was Bill, myself, uh, Attell, uh, Colin. Uh, Nick DiPaolo, I think, did it. There was a bunch of guys. Uh, Bobby Kelly. Yeah, it was a really good show. Will Sylvents. Um So we just did that and gave money to his mother and to his sister. Yeah. I, I'm sorry, to his, uh, his, his wife or his girlfriend. You know, did, when, uh, when, um, when that happens, does that, how does that affect you? Are you weird about death? Are you okay with it? Or does it? Um, I'm okay with it. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm sober for many years, so it's like, you know, being sober, you, you see a lot of people uh, overdose or drink and, you know, themselves to death or kill themselves. You know, it's not that you get used to it, but you understand what that is. It's never not, you don't, you never look at it like, ah, what the hell? But you, you, you become like, okay, this is the process. I grieve or I cry or whatever it is I do, I go through it. You, you, it the process is not so unfamiliar. Right. Um, and then once in a while, one happens that is just like, eh, like nothing prepares you for it and that was he was one of those uh geraldo was one that being sober all those years 
I had seen so many guys either kill themselves or overdose that, you know, I, it was like, okay, here we are again. It's fucking miserable. You're upset. Step but you don't one. feel blindsided by it. You don't, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. You don't feel blindsided by it. Um, Patrice, you feel blindsided by. And maybe I shouldn't have, but I did. And I think all of his friends did. And everybody has deaths that blindside them. That's just the way it is. And as, a, as, as a sober guy, so, you know, like that's you, you and I are both that. Is it uh, how do you deal with Because when you drink a lot, you just sort of just use that as the crutch. Like, no matter what I'm feeling, if it's immense joy or if it's immense sadness, I'll just use this to sort right. of dampen my emotions. And then when you quit drinking, there's like a year or two where you're like, what are all these weird things yeah. happening? Like, it's almost like you, you, you know, it's almost like you develop a new sense that you didn't have before. So how do you, how do you cope with that stuff? The same way I cope with joy, the same way I cope with uh, being hungry, I go right to the computer and I jerk myself into a special place. <laughs> yes, I dissociate, as they say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure, it's one thing. You know, I don't have the food addiction. I could, or gambling. Those are ones that I haven't fallen off those cliffs, but with drinking and drugs I did, and with sex I have. So it's with 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 uh i i sexualize i just go to the and i zone out man and you do get high off it it's like a fucking it's like a morphine drip you know what i mean you don't feel anything you start to feel something it's just like a, it's a numbness it's a numbness it's a it's a constant steady like this just this sound and and you're and i don't mean like you know i mean like right, right, right. i'm just being you know like a like a, a water torture almost and you just you focus on nothing is it with with sexual addiction cuz you know that's one of those ones where i feel like there is a legitimate addiction problem, and then there's probably a bunch of people yeah. who just go, "Honey, I'm a sex addict. Yeah. What do you want?" You know, like that they just sort of use it yeah, as an was excuse. An excellent David Duchovny impression. Was that- <laughs> <laughs> I'm a sex addict. I'm gonna make this show about a guy who fucks everyone. Um, yeah. But uh, so, so what? What is the what is the delineation between like, oh, sex is a thing that of course everyone wants to enjoy versus like, no, this is an actual ad- addiction. I think it's the same as it is with anything else. Like with drinking, people are like, "Wow, you, you like to have a good time. Wow, yeah, come on, you have a few extra drinks." And then there's the, then there's the guy who drunk drives into a wall. You know, right. I think it's like you know, it's not Billy Joel, Billy, exactly, or a house, yeah, or four walls. <laughs> it's it's not uh, it's not you know uh, what you do or how much you do. It's what it does to you. And it's like you look at a guy like Anthony Weiner, like look what it cost him. Like it, it cost him. Not his marriage. 40 points. 40 points. <laughs> <laughs> knowing, knowing that that could happen, but still not being able to not avoid it. Knowing he was texting, like, knowing he could be trapped by it again and right. doing it again. Like, the insanity of that. It's not normal behavior. It's not, again, where, hey, you just like to have sex. It's, it's just jerking off. It's that mania. It's that constant fucking dopamine uh, fix knowing what it's going to cost you and doing it anyway. Yeah. That, to me, is what makes it addictive as opposed to, hey, we all like to get laid and come. Yeah, of course we do. Yeah. But when you know that your entire political career can be irreparably damaged and and, and you've had that happen and you're coming back and you're doing it anyway, it's like he's not a dumb guy. He's a brilliant guy. And, you know, it's like, what a dumb fucking thing to do. Yeah. I think that's where certain things become addictive. Where the wiring, where you know that the wiring is like, oh, yeah, that went right around your better judgment. You just do it. You, you go right over consequences. And well, then maybe the, just, just go, the... oops, I didn't, oh, I did it again. Whoops. Uh, the, texting, the texting is one thing, but sending your dick pics. Exactly. Like, that's just, that's a whole other level of either narcissism or just, just... I, Shutting your brain down I to the possibility. I don't know that it's why anyone in today's society would photograph or record 
anything. Correct. Because it's, you know, obviously there's a lot of stuff I'm sure that has not gotten out, but a lot of it, I mean, like, and it takes a second and a half for it to just become this runaway. Sure. Where it's way out of your control and it's just out there. That's why the key is if you're going to send a dick picture, always send one that makes it look good. Uh, yeah. I, I'm, a, I'm a filthy comic, so I don't give. A, I've sent my dick picture to a lot of girls. I don't care what they do with it. Put it, put it online. Go ahead. What the fuck like? But it? you're also not running for mayor. That's exactly it. <laughs> yes. Yes. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. That's but, a problem. He just had the wrong job. If he was a comic, people were like, yeah, of course. What yeah. do you What do you expect? Yeah. Of course, he's going to send dick pics to people. It's funny. He said running for mayor. Kristen Davis, when she was running for uh, governor a few years ago, asked me to run as her lieutenant governor. She. Uh, you know, because she's a friend of mine, and she asked me to sit. She, we had lunch, and she's like, "I want you to run," and I, I didn't do it, of course. And I talked to my managers, and they said, "No, it's 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 a it's a stuntish thing. You can't do that." Yeah. You know, they've been very logical about stuff that is not artistically, and I don't mean like don't do that joke, but stuff that's stuntish. Like, don't do that shit. You don't need yeah. that reality show thing on you. Right, right, right. Don't do it. So I didn't do it, and I was kind of glad. Because it would have been just a, a stupid mockery, and then oh, you're the guy who did, you know. You, it probably would have been fun for about a week, and then like, what the fuck did I? What am I do? doing? Why did I do this? Yeah, but I mean, she's an ex-madam, so I don't blame her at all <laughs> for doing it. You know, she's getting her name out there. So, do you do you ever do you ever think about like what you're doing on stage? I'm like, oh fuck, I don't want to be the character of that guy. Like, do you ever do you ever think about your so that so you don't want to come off stuntish? Do you think about that with any of your writing as well? Yeah, yeah. If I'm doing too much dirty, like what happens is like I, I'm, I, I shot a. I have a special coming out. So once it's shot, I want to drop all that material. You have to, yeah. You have to. And uh, then you go on stage and you work on new material and you go back on the road. But I was at the cellar and I had shot the special so I wasn't doing anything from it anymore. But I had nothing yet. So I was just doing dirty, you know, sexual jokes. And I was doing like, it was feeling terribly unsatisfying because it's like, all right, all dick jokes, man, you fucking hack. Nothing had happened um, and then all of a sudden something will happen which will spark you and you'll start talking about it. Because that's how I work out material. I just talk it through on stage at the cellar. I very rarely write things down because I'm on every night. So it's like the redundancy of it helps you remember. Yeah. And uh, But be- in between that process, there was like two months uh, where I was like, I didn't want to force it. I'm like, when it happens, it will happen. And it did. But I was like, fuck, man, you're just doing filthy hooker jaw. It was just, it felt like I needed a shower every night I walked off. Mm-hmm. I, had a very, I had a very similar, I've had a very similar thing after my special where I was just writing a bunch of jokes. And I'm like, oh, it's so, and, and I would get the idea to go, oh, something, something, vagina. God damn it again. Yeah. And so what I decided to do was like, I'll just tell them. And just work through it. Like, I'll just, like, my obviously my brain wants to express this for some reason, so I'll just get it out of the way. Yeah. And then maybe underneath that, I'll find whatever the thing is that I actually really do want to talk about. And it actually has been incredibly helpful. Yeah, I mean, just to talk about, to tell the audience what you're doing is sometimes helpful. Like, uh, there's an honesty in it. And sometimes it backfires, and other times they love that you've told them, look, I'm going to do this for a little bit. And, you know, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But the honesty, I think you're never going to go wrong with the honesty. Yeah. Um, do you, uh, uh, when, do, when you're talking on stage, people come to see you now on purpose now, so they kind of know what they're getting into, I would imagine. Right? When I'm on the road, yeah, at the comedy show, no, I don't work under my own name there. You don't? No, no, no. Because I, I want a totally uh, Carlos Danger. I, yeah, <laughs> God, what a great one. No, I don't. Uh, I for a long time I was taking names out of the JFK assassination. I had gotten death threats at one point, like that that I actually a couple of them I actually believed. So I, I didn't want to be there. 
every night under my own name. Um, Jack the... Ruby's there again? I don't yeah. understand. <laughs> yeah, Lee, <laughs> Lee H. Oswald. Wait, that's familiar. That's bizarre. Yeah, no, I would never use those, but I would use like David Ferry, uh, Clay Bertrand, Clay Shaw. Clay Bertrand is Clay Shaw. <laughs> yeah, I know, but they didn't know that. <laughs> never on the same show. <laughs> <laughs> the weird, well-thought-out conspiracy theories of all the different names yeah. from the assassination that you use. Yeah. So when you get when you get death threats, what was it? What 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 did you say? Well, it was all kinds of weird stuff it from was, from radio. Oh yeah, always. It's stuff that you've said that they just object to or they don't like yeah. or they think uh, if you've criticized Islam, it's Islamophobic. Whatever it is, there's always someone that will be upset about it. Always, no matter what your point of view, no matter what you're talking about, somebody will be bothered. If you're saying you're against gay marriage, gay people are against you. If you're very for gay marriage, well then ultra religious people are against you. You will never say anything that pleases everybody. If you take a stance, that will happen. But that's yeah. also good. That's also compelling radio. Like sure. you have to, to you have to take a, a stance on something, and that's what gets people engaged. Louis gave me a great compliment one time um, uh, on stage after he said, "You're really good at explaining why you think the way you think, like in a joke form." And that's all I can ask for is like. I don't need to convince the audience I'm right. Mm. I just need my job is to make them laugh first and foremost, but to let them know why I said what I said, and this is my thought process, and this is why I think this way. You know, and, and, and again, in a joke, not literally, and then let them know why I came to the conclusion I did, and they do what they want with it. My right. job is not to convince them that I'm right and they're wrong. You know what I mean? So, oh, that's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah, I guess that's true because ultimately. If you say a bunch of stuff, like any medium, if you lay a bunch of premises out there, you just have to, if you can justify it properly, then people will be like, okay, no matter how ridiculous this thing is, if you give me good enough reasons, I will I will be on board. Yeah, and as long as you can defend what you say in, in a way like, you know, if you're talking about things that are harsher or topical or, or could get you in trouble, especially on the radio, you got to be able to defend what you've said to a point like... Like, you know, special interest groups, what, what, what is offensive changes so quickly and what can get you in deep trouble is so, you know, tomorrow it's one thing, the day after that it's another thing. And things you said two years ago will now come back and haunt you because everything, like you said, is recorded. <laughs> so uh, you have to be able to at least defend even aggressively what you've, what you've said. Um, and I, I do that by attacking the fraudulent outrage of people who are attacking uh, the things that we say. Like, I don't believe their outrage at all. Like, the people who are upset at Paula Dean, I didn't buy that. I thought it was, it was bullshit and it was a chance for white people to grandstand about how they're not race. Like, yeah. I, so I try to attack the people who are doing that because uh, it sets up a pattern of these people have been full of shit for so long, so if they come after me, they're still full of... You know what I mean? Yeah, but you also have the... I mean, oh, man... Because of the radio show and because you're very outspoken, it's like it's not just it's not just on stage. I mean, like you sort of take that into life. Yeah, that's basically that's a, probably a lot of your day. It probably could be all of your day if you let it be. I try not to be obsessed with it, but in, you know, talking for a living, you become obsessed with the language and what is penalized in the language. And it's like it's really weird. Like I've become like radically disgusted with Americans at, at, at the phoniness of people in their free speech ideas. Hitchens did an amazing talk, which I saw recently. He was in Toronto. And I, I think he didn't get into all the... Because, you know, he just hated religion and all that, and I'm, everyone knows that. But he was scolding the, these people at this Toronto university, I think for, like, a very politically correct anti-hate speech thing they were taking. And uh, don't say that about Islam. And he was just talking about radical Islam. And he said that you're, when you censor what somebody is saying, you're robbing yourself of the ability to hear their opinion. And it's also... You know, the most pr 
hateful speech is protected, like religious speech. He goes, all the things that are anti-homosexual or anti-this and anti-religious, they're in the Bible or they're in the Quran or they're in these, and they're protected. But if you criticize them, it's called hate speech. And he had this genius uh, speech he gave on it and where, where basically any form of telling people what they can't say is, is just restrictive and it's garbage. Well, it is interesting to me that... Um... By the way, that's the worst descriptions of a Hitchin speech you'll ever hear. <laughs> just, as, as explained by I, I was, I was moved to boredom. <laughs> oh, dude, as, I, as, as I said it, I was booing myself. <laughs> Jesus, at least you had the luxury of not knowing when it would end. You could zone out. I had to focus on it. I guess one of the things that sort of irritates me now with the kind of, you know, the headline web culture that, that we live in is that... Um, is that, uh, you know, people, and I've said this before when Baratunde was on, we had a really great talk about it, about how people are m- more addicted to outrage than they are the actual topics that they are seemingly, you know, m- m- outraged at. That it's more like, they want to be mad at someone, and where can I get mad? Oh, that guy said something that he, oh, fuck you! Like, what did that guy say? I don't know, it just seemed like... And like, and again, it's not taking the time. Now, I'm not saying that some people don't deserve to be publicly shamed, sure. but you really should, you really should have an understanding of what it is that you're angry about before you start attacking someone. Which I know was a lot to ask, but it, I, in an ideal world, and then the claptrap happens. But you're right, works. though, and I think that the outrage serves a purpose. I think I don't even think the outrage is the final goal. I think people just want to be heard, and they want to feel like they've weighed in and people have listened to them. So when you're outraged or you're wounded, people are like, what's wrong? Are you okay? Like, people just want... That's why trolls on the internet do what they do. Like, I had a debate with Lindy. She was a blogger from Jezebel. We debated rape jokes on Kamau Bell's show. And it was a friendly debate, and, you know, she's against certain types of rape jokes, and I, I defended that position, even though it wasn't my act she was attacking. She was just, you know, she wrote that article uh, mm-hmm. to all white men, whatever. And we had a friendly debate. It was fine, and I like her. And then afterwards, a lot of people going on say, I hope you get raped and all this horrible shit to her, which only strengthened her argument. Like, see, this is a rape culture. But it wasn't about, oh, people wanted her to get raped. Because if we were arguing about drunk driving or talking about drunk driving, people would have went online and said, I hope you're killed by a drunk driver. I hope you hit a pole drunk. They wouldn't have said rape. They were just taking whatever it was her position was and trying to hurt her with it. And it wasn't that people wanted her to be injured. They just wanted to be heard, and they didn't know how else to be heard. So you say something horrible and shocking. It's like being in a room full of people who are ignoring you, and then you walk in and you yell, fuck, cunt, and everybody goes, what? Right. They look at you. That's well, all it is. There's also something very, you know, um, a lot of it, I think, is also uh, to achieve some type of significance. And it's the same way where, like, when people deliver bad news, oh. it's empowering to them. Yeah. It's empowering to them. It's like, it's like why you'll have people go, uh, they'll go, Oh man, you shouldn't go over on Facebook. They're saying some really shitty things about you. You're like, oh, it's really just as bad as the, pe-. Yeah. you know, it's because they want to, it's empowering for them to say something really negative because it will grab your attention and be like, oh, you know, it's like they're getting a piece of you in some way and that's empowering to them. Yeah, do you hear what happened? Oh, they, <laughs> fuck you. They love it. They love people. I hate people who love to deliver bad news. Yeah. I, they love it. And you can tell they're relishing it. You can see their dumb little beady shit. Well, eyes. I didn't want to be the one to see. Yes, you did. You mean you just slammed the door and locked it. Of course you wanted to be the one. Of course you wanted to be the one. That's what moms get off on later in life. They just get to call you up and tell you who died in the family. Oh, yeah. yeah. No. Oh, oh ba- Bamford's got a great bit about her mom leaving those messages on the on the answering machine, where it's like you know it's something's very it's something very nonchalant, and then you know and then talking about someone who has some horrible disease yeah. in a very kind of nonchalant. When my phone way. rings, my first and I see it, it's my mom. My first thought is just, uh, I wonder who died. Yep. 
<laughs> I wonder yeah. who died. My mother said the first thing she'll say to me uh, when, when I pick up the phone is she'll go, hi, everyone's okay. She does say that yeah. immediately, which I like. Yeah. She, yeah. she lets me off the hook <laughs> immediately. So she has, I know she doesn't have shitty news, Yeah, <laughs> which is nice. Um, are you? Uh, when does your special come out? It's uh, August 23rd on okay. Epics and EpicsHD.com, and uh, it's called American Degenerate. Okay, and this this will go up before that. So that oh this, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So that's that, cool. This will I, I actually like this one a lot. Whenever I shoot something, I hate it. <clears throat> like I shot one a year ago, and after I saw it, I was like, I wanted to hang myself in the closet. Like I like it in hindsight, but when I had to edit it, I was like, you fuck it, you're terrible. Like I hate anything once I've seen it too many times. I hate. Oh it. yeah. But this one, I'm actually very happy with. Like I, I, I've, I was okay with it when I did it. And it was what I wanted. Like, you know, you do something, you're like, okay, that's kind of what I Oh, expected. you just haven't watched it enough yet. You're probably right. Well, One more time, and I'll be myself out <laughs> the window. But you know, what, you know what happens is that, you know, in your brain, especially if you, if you have a tendency toward addictive personalities, that, uh, that you can sort of get into the ritual of like, oh, no, if it's going to be good, I have to hate it. Like, you start making all these weird associations yep. that are, that are for what, what is interesting is that I see a lot of people who are um, essentially atheists or non, non-religious people do very kind of religious ritualistic behavior in other ways because they think that there are connections there that may not necessarily be there. Right, like they're looking for something beyond themselves and outside themselves. They just don't want to call it a deity. Like they don't realize that hey, your OCD is fucking something, you know. It, it, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it is. I mean, I really yeah. do think that sort of ritualistic behavior to, uh, to sort of, you know, I don't know, forge an outcome of some type. I mean, that is very... You know that's that's ritual. Like that's the same kind of a mechanism. It's just expressed in a different <laughs> kind of fucked up way. Yeah. So wait, they're dicks for handling snakes in Tennessee, but you're right because you want to leave the house at two o seven. And if you don't leave at two o seven, then it's not going to work. What's going to happen? You yeah. Exactly. Check the door thirty times because your yeah. fucking hand didn't work the first time you locked it. Yeah. It's, you're well, right. I have to handle a snake at two o eight. I got to get out. <laughs> can't do it in the house. Oh my god, you're doing both. Yes, I know. You're doing both. Of Fuck things. God. <laughs> I think it's the. Uh, I think there really is. I think a lot of it really has to do with the amount of information that we are, are uh, that we take to process now. That this is this type of obsessive behavior. This is I think this is our brains not being evolved enough yet to deal with what we're what we ask our brains to deal with on a daily basis. When you look at it a hundred years ago, well, I gotta go uh, till that field and make sure the crops come in so we don't die. But I really have one task that I have to right. perform today. So you're thinking OCD is a recent phenomenon? I'm not saying that it wasn't always there. I, w- I would I would I would be interested in finding out and uh, to the internet at some point to find out. But my guess is that that is probably more prevalent than it was. I'm sure you'd have cases that were undiagnosed before, just records weren't as good. Mm-hmm. But I really think that because I know so many people who have the same afflictions. Yeah. So many people. And maybe it's because we're all in the same business and that just yeah, it's just a my, Venn uh, diagram that attracts the same type of person. All my affliction t-shirts have to be hung in a certain <laughs> way. <laughs> but I would, oh, you have an affliction affliction. Yeah. <laughs> but my guess is that, uh, that that is more prevalent today than it was uh, throughout history because of the way that we are, our brains are not evolved to handle Yeah, this. that's very possibly. And, and I think our generation is very having a hard time. We're the only generation that's had to deal with like the the coming of the internet like because we you i remember life before it you know, yeah. I was in my 20s and then all of a sudden here it is and it's like older younger people don't have to worry about it because they grew up with it so this is life as they know it and even they're not handling it that well i mean they're making these dumb mistakes and people who are in their 50 50 58 60 years old they don't want to know because nobody wants to see what's right behind the corner on right. their way out the door right. that's why old people ignore technology i think that's one of the reasons why some of us 
who are, had had our feet in both generations, like like pre-internet age and and, and post-internet age. I think that's one of the reasons why we are so affected by trollery or what people say online is because we were raised to, you know, if someone walks up to your face and goes, hey, you're a fucking piece of shit, you'd be like, what do you, what? Yeah. Like, you know, that you would you would stop to really give that sure. some credence and deal with it. Um, well, that doesn't really happen because people don't really do that very often. Whereas the whole generation of people now are just like, Oh, it's the internet. It fucking doesn't matter. Right, right, but right. we, but since we know, you know, like we still associate what that would have meant if someone walked up to us in real life because we remember those days. Yeah, and we understand that the guy who's doing that online is probably a fraud um, <laughs> and, and a fucking a, a jizz bag sitting in his fucking either his parents' house with his dumb, awful looking wife. Tending <laughs> to kid. You know what I mean? But to me, those people, like I have such a loathing of anonymity when it comes to stuff like that. The cowardice of it. Uh, you know, it, it just it, it really bothers me. And those are people who petition to get people in trouble for speaking their minds. I, you know what I mean? Like, the, this, it, we don't live in communist China. Or we're not in North Korea where uh, you have to say things under there or you're going to get in big trouble. You're allowed to exp- express political opinions in our country without getting sunk. You're not going to get sunk if you say, hey, I'm voting for so-and-so or I think this guy will be a better mayor. Um, people just hide behind that because they really want to go on the attack and not suffer any of any the consequences, any of the blowback, and and it is also it it is also frustrating if you're you know well especially if you're like you and you you say you have to stand behind everything you say. Yeah. So if you have an opinion, you're taking a risk. Yeah, that's in culture is what expressing an opinion is. It comes with a risk that some people might be like, hey, what the fuck? But you will do that because you are willing to stand behind your words and defend what you say or at least have you know some intelligent discourse about it. And so that's really frustrating when other people just want just want their side out there but they don't want to they don't want to have to answer for anything or take responsibility for any of their words which is a really fucked up thing that has evolved and then the, the sickening part is that there are people like if you go on facebook and you give an unpopular opinion about race or whatever or like here's an example like like uh because it does work i guess both ways like miss america you know uh perez hilton asked her about gay marriage he asks her a question she answers honestly. Now, I don't agree with her answer. I mean, I think it's stupid to be against it, but she is. So she says, well, no, I think that's just a man and a woman. And then people attack her. <clears throat> it's like, hey, motherfucker, don't ask if you want an honest answer. If she's against it and you ask her and she says she's against it, you can't be mad at her and attack her like she's a terrible person. You have to accept her answer. Um, you know, If she offers it up and is aggressively saying, fuck gay people, they shouldn't get married, then you can attack her. But if you ask somebody how they feel about something, it was like Helen uh, Thomas from the White House. Uh, you know, she's she was the lead reporter for all those years, this horrible little woman. And uh, she says something that was, again, I didn't agree with about Israel. Uh, someone asked her about uh, Israel and yeah. the Palestinians, and she gives an answer that a lot of people don't like, and I think they should candor. And it's like, that's we're training people to lie. Like, we deserve every fucking liar we get because we tell you that if you tell the truth and we don't like it, we're going to step back and watch you be lynched. Uh, Paula Dean. Uh, you know, they said to her, did you say that? And she said, yeah, 30 years ago, we all stand back and we watch her career end. And it's like Matt Lauer gives this fucking sanctimonious interview. And it's like, hey, man, all right, you don't want to talk like that. Don't talk like that. But don't act like in your life under oath, you could say you've never said a racially insensitive thing. Don't act like that. There's no one in this country that's never said a racially insensitive thing. But none of us admit that. We all just sit back and watch this big fucking butter-making food <laughs> fat dummy get strung up by the neck like we can't believe. We, we react to people's speech. <clears throat> like, you know legitimately how you feel 
when you see a rapist or a child molester or a beheading, like it's a visceral, oh my fucking God. Like, and it's a real reaction. It's a real disconnect. Like, I don't comprehend that. We act the same way when it comes to people saying unpopular or shitty things, and it's a very dishonest disconnect. It's a lie. You know what I mean? We're trying to we're trying to distance ourselves from by pretending we're shocked or upset by yeah. it. Yeah. Well, it's 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 that reaction, not just for that, but for for anything that people see online, whether it's a a band or a performer or a, a food item or something. This is a fucking war. You know, it's like that sort of internet joke like, oh, when does worse than Hitler get pulled into this? Right. You know, like, <laughs> really are those shrimp balls you had really worse than Hitler for reals? You know, well, you like, don't know how much those shrimp balls hated Jews. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it was no, that's true. I, more than Hitler. But, uh, uh, well, we're at about an hour, which is about how long the podcast is. Thank you which for having me. Which will explain. Huh? <laughs> Over explaining it. Well, see, initially I was like, should it be an hour? Should it be an hour and 15 minutes? Should it be 45 minutes? And then I decided. <laughs> hour seven. Gotta go get the snakes. <laughs> How long are you in LA for, by the way? I, I, uh, I go home Wednesday night on, on the, uh, the red eye. Oh, shit. You're not going to. Are you going to do the meltdown show? You probably won't, you won't, you won't have show. time. I don't know what that is. No. It's a it's show, show me and Kumail Nanjiani do uh, Wednesdays here. Uh, but it's a really good show. And uh, What Louis, time do you do it? Uh, 8.30 is when we start. Yeah, no, I'm leaving um, on a yeah nine o'clock flight. Okay. Shit! After uh, what if I didn't tell you the time? And I'd probably have agreed to flight. it. Yeah, I love show. Delight. <laughs> Anytime you're in town. Thank you. Yeah, Louis no, he drops in man. when he's in town. Oh, okay. And Tosh and uh, Drew Care was just here and stuff like that. So did you did fun. you perform when you were in LA at all? No, not this time. Um, so I'm, I'm doing promo all day today and all day tomorrow and then on Wednesday and then I just I leave and. Um, Again, I could have just said no, but I figured I would just give a really <laughs> boring dissertation. You know, it's funny you should ask, because I have nothing interesting to say, but I'll, my mouth will move. <laughs> Fucking sounds will fall out of it. <laughs> Thanks for having me, by the way. I hate, it, like, I, I hate to ask people for stuff. I hate it. But I texted you, and I'm like, you know, is it, do you have time? Um, and you did, and, and I knew it was kind of last minute, so I really appreciate it. And, and uh, my publicist, I'm like, you know, you were one of the first ones I asked for, because I know you guys have a huge following. And she's like, well, they're usually... Uh, they're usually months in advance to book something. I'm like, well, okay, well, if they are, then we can just ask and they can say that they don't have the availability. But she drove me nuts with that. I'm like, just fucking ask. If they no, say no, 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 it's okay. The, the, uh, some, sometimes the reason that we get behind on some podcasts is because we'll do a cluster and people are like, this has to go out at this time. Uh -huh. And we record so many that particularly like over the summer when a lot of movies are coming out um, and in the fall the TV shows or books, it's just like, oh, these all have to go at these times because right. that's was sure. when these people came on. They said, so, you know, we will always try to, you know, when people want stuff to if go possible, yeah. yeah. But then there are other ones where it's like, oh, we just had someone come on. It was a little more evergreen. They weren't necessarily promoting anything specific. We have to, we'll hang on to that for a little while yeah. so we can kind of get through the ones that needed to go up in a, in a timely fashion. So I'm, I'm glad you asked. And, and it's always... I always sometimes feel like, oh, fuck, there's so many people in New York that I would love to have on, but we're just not there, and we yeah. don't do phoners. So, no, Thank you for the spit take. First one. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for doing it. Yeah. That really made me happy. <laughs> <laughs> so when you when you said that you were in town available, it was like, ah, oh, fuck, we got, like, I felt like we trapped you. It was, like, it was really I was, good. I was happy to, man. And, and phoners, we don't do them on the radio either. Very, very rarely. They're hard to they're do. They're awful. Yeah. They're hard. You need to see someone's eyes. You need yes. to see when they're about to start talking and finish talking, and it's just. And even that, like, millisecond delay with a phone line it still throws everything out. I'm sure you've been on conference calls before where it's like you know there's like five people and they're all the one person is outdoors and all you can hear is traffic and it's like who's can someone please mute the phone and then everyone will do this what the, oh no you go yeah. I'll, I'll give you the, oh no you go oh no I'm sorry yeah, sorry no go ahead what no yeah, you go it's a horrible I just no you well I just think that, no you 
It's the worst. You know who does good phoners? Worse than Hitler. <laughs> it, uh, Bill Burr does good phoners, and uh, uh, Jay Moore is great on the phone. Hmm. Jay, for some reason, Dice is great on the phone. There really? are certain guys that can just dominate. I've been doing radio for fucking years, and I can't call Opie and Anthony and be interesting. I stink. <laughs> stink on the phone. But uh, like there are guys like Dice and Jay that can dominate on the phone. It's a really, really hard thing to do, so I don't blame you. And again, thank you very much for, for having me. And also congratulations on your appearance in uh, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. Uh, yeah, you know, a lot of people said that I really was the turning point in that movie, that my <laughs> negativity just yep. kind of turned the city against him. He thinks you don't like him. I didn't meet Sam Raimi, though. It was all second unit shit shot yeah. in the fucking uh, Queens. Never got to meet him. Bullshit. Yeah. Fucking bullshit. Still a standout moment, I will say. Got a laugh in the theater that I saw it in. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. I feel it was one of my shining moments. I did like, <laughs> it, we taped for 25 minutes, and I give one decent acting line, and that was the one they kept. <laughs> I'm the king of one line. Like, Kevin Smith will always give me one line in a movie, because I can't do any more than that. I like to think it. that leading up to it, you were like, he stinks, and I hate yes. him. He stinks, and I hate him. Yeah. <laughs> he stinks, and I don't like him. I had done some stupid thing about he was shooting the web, and I compared it to a load, and the guy's like, look, this is a kid's movie. Uh, you can't <laughs> say that. <laughs> so you just boiled it down to, he stinks, and I don't like him. Yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> all is said and done. <laughs> I would love to see the outtakes of that. Yeah, I would too, actually. Oh. All right, if anyone has those, please send them to us. Uh, Jim Norton, thanks for being here. Enjoy your burrito. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. Nancy's love story could have been ripped right out of the pages of one of her own novels. She was a romance mystery writer who happens to be married to a chef. But this story didn't end with a happily ever after. When I stepped into the kitchen, I could see that Chef Brophy was on the ground, and I heard somebody say... Call 911. As writers, we'd written our share of murder mysteries. So when suspicion turned to Dan's wife, Nancy, we weren't that surprised. The first person they look at would be the spouse. We understand that's usually the way they do it. But we began to wonder, had Nancy gotten so wrapped up in her own novels... There are murders in all of the books. ...that she was playing them out in real life? You can listen to Happily Never After, Dan and Nancy, early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.